0: We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML.
1: Hey,
2: it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Big Ben Strong is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here, Scott Thompson.
3: Festival of Friends around the corner. Man, what an incredible weekend uh, for the Sound of Music Festival uh, down at uh, Burlington's Spencer Smith Park. Uh, great weekend for that. And, man, this is just kicking off the uh, the festival season, and it looks like it is going to be a banger. Uh, the Festival of Friends around the corner, August 4th long weekend, now getting a, a little bit of a clarity when it comes to their Gage Park Festival lineup. Uh, and it looks pretty good with performances from the legendary whalers, as well as Lighthouse to talk more about all of this. Rob Roccozzi is with us. And uh, talking about their uh, Saturday night show, which is Summer in the 70s, we'll find out more about all of that. Organizer, Festival of Friends, Robert Roccozzi with us now. Robert, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing great. How are you, Scott? So far, so good. So obviously, with uh, the worst days of a global pandemic behind us, uh, things are getting into full swing for this season.
4: It is hard to remember a time when it wasn't back to normal. So yeah. very exciting us.
3: So talk about this year's lineup and how things are coming together for uh, the August long weekend.
4: Well, you mentioned the summer in the '70s, and I think that's kind of uh, kind of the meat of what this weekend is going to be about. We have this amazing evening, Saturday night, August fifth, starting with the entire Hamilton Philharmonic Orchestra will be on stage for the first time ever at the festival or any uh, event in the city outside, and they will be uh, performing pop songs from the 70s. I don't know what the lineup's going to be yet, but probably Kashmir, all that kind of orchestral stuff from the 70s. Um, It's going to be incredible. Leads us into Lighthouse, all of their great hits, and then it goes into The Wailers, the, the direct legacy to Bob Marley himself, which is super exciting.
3: Uh, there are so many cool parts of this night. Just first of all, let's go back to the beginning and having the orchestra outside on stage. This is going to be a pretty cool event.
4: I don't know where I'm going to put all the musicians while they're waiting, but it's <laughs> going to be amazing.
3: <laughs> you better get another tent for backstage. But And think of all of uh, the exposure and people who will get to hear that that orchestra who, who wouldn't normally. I mean, this is this is great for everybody.
4: Yeah, the uh, the, Hill, the Philharmonic's been an amazing partner, and you know they kind of came to us with an idea of how can we bring the orchestra in, and I said, well, what about we have this idea, and it's I think it's going to be absolutely incredible. So.
3: All right, so then Lighthouse, obviously Hamilton connection there, and a big band uh, of the '70s as well, and then uh, Bob Marley's uh, backing band, the Whalers, uh, to finish the night off. That's pretty cool too. I've seen the, I've seen them before a few years ago, and uh, that should add a lot to uh, the Festival of Friends.
4: Yeah, it's fascinating because you know Lighthouse is a band that's large and has many members and some have passed away and some continue and some have been mentored by and some are the pro- the progeny of those people and the way yeah. they're the same way you know these bands that just keep going the music continues the orchestra has had thousands of members play through it over the years and it's just kind of like music continues no matter what if i can get a little deep
3: <laughs> festival of friends has got a different vibe to it a cool vibe give it to someone who's never been before give a bit of the history a bit of the legacy of this festival
4: yeah, it was started in 1976 by Bill Powell. It was started as a, as a small folk festival, and now it has become one of the country's largest free music festivals. There's 125 vendors, there's a midway escape rooms, there's a children's area, there's everything you can imagine, but the focus has always been on our three stages of music, featuring all all types, everything you can imagine. Um, and we haven't even talked about what we had Friday. We have a country music day on Sunday with the James Barker Band, who is this huge uh Canadian band who's now living in Nashville, just had a new album and a new uh, signing with Sony Records down there, and that's going to be huge for the country fans, and uh, it's very exciting. And what about Friday? So Friday is Bahamas, and they're an indie band, and if you're familiar with them, if younger people are, uh, you'll, you will yeah. you will understand how great that is. A lot of people uh, will have heard his music in Ted Lasso, which just recently appeared on one of their songs, so one of their episodes.
3: And the great thing about the Festival of Friends always has a very eclectic, wide range of music, and you got that again this year, it looks like.
4: Always. I mean, we got obviously reggae, we go to country, we have a lot of folk, we have a little bit of hip-hop. It's it's everything for all ages.
0: And
3: what's the best way to get down there? What's the best way if people are coming in from out of town to see this festival?
4: Well, we do have, there is plenty of parking, and there's also ample street parking but if you can you know take the bus in or walk uh, that's the best part of it being in the middle of the city that there is uh it is very walkable for the vast majority of people who attend
3: all right so we'll talk to you in august a little closer. well end of july a little closer to the event see how it's uh shaping up but it looks uh, pretty good a website we can go to to find out more
4: festivalfriends.ca
3: All right, festivaloffriends.ca, festivaloffriends.ca. The lineup is now out for the August Long Weekend Festival and not going to disappoint this year as well. Robert Ricosi with us, organizer of the Festival of Friends. Uh, Rob, thanks so much for the time. Good luck with it this year. I appreciate it. Take care. heard every Sunday night right here on CHML Raceline Radio. And the host, Eric Thomas, is here to talk about uh, the Canadian Grand Prix in Montreal over the weekend. um, Max Verstappen uh, leading it pretty much from start to finish. Uh, But uh, a fun race nonetheless. Eric with us now.
2: Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Well, we're doing good. Doing good it was, a, was a fine Grand Prix. It may not have been the most exciting race, but uh, one of the things, that, I was even talking about this with, with, with Roy Green over the weekend, is that you know, we, we watch these races from tracks from afar. But the one thing that always strikes me about Montreal at Circuit du Villeneuve and the Montreal waterfront is the fact that it looks so good on TV. It photographs Boy, so does, well. it hey,
3: man, it does it ever. Man, I know, thought that. I said that yeah. to my wife. Man, it looks amazing with water on either side.
2: That's right boats going up and down and there's lots of trees and the grandstands are packed I mean that was a it was amazing to see so when you see that is it any wonder that the city of Montreal the province of Quebec stays behind this event because it is the absolute best travel log commercial promotion video you could ever have for the city of Montreal is is the fact that that, that race is there the excitement that's there and the fact that it looks so darn pretty there it looks nice on the on television so it's a it's a huge uh, you know know tourism tool and promotional tour uh tool rather for the city and of course the, it's it's unique and the simple fact is that unlike anywhere else except maybe monaco but then they're still you know far back mm. is that where the grandstands are especially along the start finish line up to the you know that that from the wall yeah. of champions they right at the last turn the fans are like right up to the fence and it's like a hockey arena there i mean yeah. you know martin brundle's doing his grid walk on the tv show and the fans are like eh, it's just like being at a hockey game you know and it's really really good you don't have, you don't have that really anywhere else on the entire F1 circuit, so it's it's a good show, exciting all the way around, and it looks good on TV. So it was it was a lot of fun, as you said. Uh,
3: and as you said, there's some sections of it uh, of the track very pretty, lots of trees and what have you, and it's amazing how the trees will move as this train it's of cars air. goes by. It's just it's, yeah, incredible. You to see that, that. Too, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did notice that. Um, so uh, you know, one time this was the only uh, uh, F1 race in. in north america used yeah. to be at mossport and then obviously off to montreal for for the last several years and such now they've added three american races whether it's um uh, austin texas miami and then vegas coming up yep. how has that changed the complexion of of f1 considering and i remember you saying that you know having a race in north america is one thing but now to have four including yep. uh, montreal
2: Montreal, yeah, and of course Montreal is the grand old girl. It hasn't changed location. I mean, the the U.S. Grand Prix in the U.S. has changed locations quite a lot. As a matter of fact, you know they're going to that new race in Vegas. Let Let's remember that you used to be in Long Beach, California, and they did run the U.S. Grand Prix in the parking lot of Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas mm. way, way back when. And and now they're, re- they're revisiting that. It just goes back to that that n- that knowledge that. The reason why Formula One needs such a large footprint in North America is because they sell a lot of cars here. You know, they sell a lot yeah. of you know Mercedes and Ferraris, and these are high-end automobiles. But, you know, like the Middle East, that's why they're there. That's why, you know, they're in the Far East, because they go where... The car manufacturers are selling automobiles and they need that big North American footprint the one thing that's good about Montreal that separates it from the. US races is the fact that it's a bilingual town but it, it has a very European flavor to it yeah you know yeah. and they close down a lot of the streets downtown for car shows and various things and there's all kinds of parties that go on that is akin to when they go to you know any 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 track name any track you want in in Germany in France right. in England or in any of these places like that it has that that international feel to it. The American races don't necessarily have that. They're still great events, but it, all, all it really does is cement Formula One's popularity in North America with all these races that have been tacked on, along with the the Circuit du Villeneuve in Montreal. And the Canadian race has been ensconced, as, in, and for the longest time was, and still is, for many of the drivers and the teams, the North American race. And that'll really, really never change because it's, it's a big party, and it's a great track, and it's very, very challenging. So it, it has very good stead, and very good standing i don't think there's any danger of montreal being eliminated because of all these races in the u.s i think they i think they all married together very very well for the
3: all right so let me ask you the, the next question eric what about a second race in canada whether it's in vancouver or toronto
2: well, I mean, they've talked about that. I mean, I, the Indian Toronto course has been there, you know, since 86. And, you know, originally they had uh, the the course around the lakeshore was talked about by John Bassett to put it in as an F1 race and have the track go through what was C&E Stadium, where the Argos used to play and the Jays eventually played, was to have the track go through there. That got shot down and was never revived. And, of course, it was housed as in the roll-up for years, you know, back in the 60s when it started at, at now Canadian Tire. Motorsport Park, which we still call Fondly at, at most parts. So, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you put it in Toronto with the IndyCar race there. Vancouver used to have the Indy there. They tried to put a Formula E race on, but there was all kinds of problems with that. And that idea has been jettisoned. So I don't, I don't really know, you know, if you wanted to do it again. I mean, could you put it back at Canadian Tire Motorsport Park? I think, you know, Ron Fellows is coming out with us to talk about the sports car stuff. I think you'd need to do. Some rejigging of the corners and some of the some of the barriers and things like that to ever bring that thing back. But uh, yeah. you, you could you could put another F one race in Canada. I think it would be supported. The trouble is, Scooter, where you know where the hell do you put it? You know that kind of thing. <laughs>
3: Well, are they more towards going to uh, you know old traditional race tracks like a port or are uh, they into street circuits now? Do they do they realize that's where? Because uh, obviously some of these tracks, especially in the one in Miami, like what a complex that looks like. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, and Vegas,
2: of course, a street race, yeah,
3: yeah, is exactly. So I mean, are they leaning more towards street races? Is well, is yeah, that more of a? Be,
2: yeah, they'd have to be because there aren't any facilities around that would that would be up to FIA specs unless you. You, you know put a whole lot of money into it which would be cost Prohibitive. Uh, you know, it's it just depends on on where you want to put this thing. Would it work in Toronto? I don't know. Would you would you would you have an F1 race and an IndyCar race and and make them popular enough in that market in this market to uh, to attract enough fans to make it profitable for two races? I don't really think so. I don't know. So then where, where else do you go? I mean, is it, could you could you put it in Halifax, someplace in a street race? I don't know. It would depend. But I think I think if you're going to go anywhere, it's going to have to be a street course. Of, of some description because, you know, I, I just don't think there are any facilities around that um, unless you spent just a whole wad of cash to get them updated to uh, FIA standards.
3: And is it about bringing people to the racetrack, or is it about bringing the racetrack to the people? Where are they uh, going to get the most audience? I mean, you know, yeah. it would be great to see them at yeah. Canadian Tire Motorsports Park again, but that's, again, taking everybody out there. Yeah. Uh, w- will, will the audience do that? Or, you know, if it's in our neighborhood, sure, we'll go see it.
2: If, if it's, you know, if it's a big enough show, they will. I mean, uh, the yeah. instant weekend at Canadian Tire Motorsport Park draws lots, and when the, the yeah. trucks were there and they're coming back, that was a capacity crowd as well. Yeah. But that is the true essence of street racing is that, just what you said, you bring the, the race to the city as opposed to bringing the people out of the city, out to the country somewhere yeah. to run a race. If it's a big enough show and it's important enough, both formats work, but that is the essence of street racing nowadays is that you don't have to go a hike have a lot, just get on the subway and go down and see it because it's right next to where you live, you know.
3: That being said, I mean, they're certainly getting a lot of campers and stuff like that to Canadian Tire Motorsports Absolutely. Park for their oh, yeah. big weekend, so it's it seems to be working. All right, Eric Thomas with us, racing. Line Radio Network, make sure you're listening right here on Sunday nights talking about the Canadian Grand Prix uh, in Montreal this past weekend. As
2: always, Eric, thanks for the time. Be well. Always enjoy it, buddy. We'll do it again soon.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Canada
3: and China, obviously the U.S. and China, a bit of a rocky relationship, uh, especially since that balloon hovered down over uh, the territories and then through B.C. and Alberta and Saskatchewan and then eventually into Montana and uh, out onto the East Coast where, uh, of course, the U.S. took it down. Uh, Well, now the uh, U.S. and China are meeting again. Diplomat Anthony Blinken. Uh, is meeting with the Chinese president, and it does look like positive, um, certainly a positive response moving forward. That being said, a lot of work to be done. Let's bring in Gordon Holden, Director Emeritus China Institute and Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta, and with us now. Gordon, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
1: I am well, sir. Thank you.
3: So obviously this meeting was supposed to happen a while ago, and then there was the whole balloon incident and such. What's different now? How do you How do you hit reset here?
1: Well, it's going to be very difficult because um, while the U.S.-China relationship is not as as problematic as the Canada-China relationship right now, it's still you know making heavy heavy weather, uh, particularly on the Taiwan issue. China's PLA growing in strength. China having a, generally a more bullshy attitude worldwide. Um, so I think that's the background. But I think the balloon thing threw things off course. The intention was, as I read it from the Biden administration, was to re some working contacts, trying to lower the temperature, and then the balloon issue put that, made that impossible. Now they appear to be back on track following up on Xi's meeting with Biden back in November in Bali.
3: Why is China more problematic for Canada than the U.S.?
1: Well, it's interesting. And, of course, that, in terms of relationship, well, it's humbling for a Canadian to admit that relationship of the two great powers— is the most important bilateral relationship on earth, so it's a more important. They also, those two countries have in their hands now the capacity to <clears throat> to wreak havoc with the world if they went to a full-scale war. China is building towards thousand, maybe even fifteen hundred ICBMs, etc. The same sort of calculus that it, that we saw during the Cold War. In the case of Canada, right now we have not had a single bilateral visit, that is, a minister going in either direction, since uh, 2018. So that's five full years. And the other G7 partners have been able, in one means or another, to keep a dialogue going. Macron goes to Beijing, Schultz goes to Beijing, Aussies and others have ministerial visits. We, because of the couple of reasons, the two Michaels was a, a real body blow, you know, Canadians... Yeah already wary of China, and that just sent the, the favorability ratings right down to the floor. They're just over 10% right now. The media, the public, um, parliament, uh, everyone has a, uh, it seems, has a very negative view of China. Uh, and for that reason, I don't think progress is really possible right now. The U.S. has got a very negative view, U.S. public, and political, bipartisan consensus, actually, negative view of China. But there's a greater... Recognition of the need to work to avoid catastrophe.
3: Hmm. What is the uh, what does the U.S. think of our relationship with China?
1: Well, I happen to know that having spoken recently to U.S. officials, I think I can safely say that they are pleased with the fact that we are more or less aligned in the sense of being wary. I think they were they were, for a fact, like nervous about the. Um, amount of Chinese investment the prospect of uh, a kind of China free trade agreement uh, they see us now more aligned in security terms Canadian frigates accompanying u.s uh, destroyers on the Taiwan Strait um, and and uh, uh, understanding in the public and in the government of the challenges that China poses for the West so I think overall uh, well they don't direct our policy they clearly influence it and I think they are um relatively pleased
3: what are the challenges with this reset between the United States and China moving forward and and where does the whole Russian invasion of Ukraine fit in cuz obviously uh it appears China's supporting uh Russia and such in in whatever partnership that is does this th- does that come up at all
1: well Those are big questions and certainly we know from the readout from the State Department from Blinken's visit that I'll just do the Ukraine thing first that the uh, Ukrainians discussed. Of course, I wasn't in the room in the Great Hall of the People, but uh, uh, the Americans said they the readout that they accept that China is not providing weapons to be used in Ukraine. Um, and they basically urged China to be careful not to allow export of goods from China that could facilitate their military campaign. Of course, China is selling a lot of goods and buying a tremendous amount of oil, the natural gas in china but at least it appears that america accepts they're not providing weapons um, but the in terms of reset um, there's some real issues still china has not agreed to the u.s proposal to restart military and military talks those are really important that is between the u.s and, and china those are the sorts of things can help avoid a situation spinning out of control imagine you had a U.S. destroyer sliced in half by a Chinese vessel, a military vessel, PLA navy, or the other, or, or in reverse, a Chinese vessel. Those are the sorts of high tension situations. We want to be able to have quick and ready and, and practiced uh, coordination, and discussion, and ability to to deal with crises like that. And we haven't seen that yet. Uh, fundamental issues like Taiwan and and the um, uh, Chinese. Uh, in, the, in the South China Sea and their broadening efforts internationally, often opposing and frustrating U.S. goals, those haven't gone away. What we've seen, though, is just here's a way we can talk about these issues, maybe solve some of them. The U.S. CIA director was in Beijing in, in May. I doubt if he was there to cut ribbons at a primary school. Hmm. He was there for tough talk, I suspect, about espionage security issues that uh, that uh, trouble both the countries.
3: Gordon Holden, Director Emeritus, China Institute and Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta, the U.S. and China talking again. So hopefully that's good news. Gordon, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
0: It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News, Today's Talk. 900 CXM1.
3: You might remember on Friday, we were talking to the city about open streets on King Street, which happened on Sunday from 10 until 2. Uh, and, and kind of a twofold idea here to, uh, well, why am I going to talk about it? Uh, apparently, the idea originally instigated by the former mayor, uh, Fred Eisenberger. And he is here now, Fred Eisenberger, former mayor of city of Hamilton. Fred, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
5: I am uh, just great, Scott. Thanks for uh, Thanks for having me on.
3: So, your thoughts on how this turned out, seeing it go from idea uh, to fruition, and, and your thoughts on the weekend?
5: Uh, no surprise at all that it uh, was uh, attracted a lot of people to roll or run or rollerblade or, or scoot or ride a bike or get their electric scooters out and just interact in the entire corridor. It's something that I witnessed in uh, Bogota, Colombia, when I was there, and they, they actually do it every sunday throughout the year in on a 20 kilometer stretch in fact and it's full of people and they're all enjoying their company or enjoying some of the businesses that are along the corridor and that that's exactly the whole purpose and reason for that the other uh, the other location that uh, i had time and opportunity to uh, to work in and when i was at the canadian urban institute was in of Ukraine and unfortunately you know the sad circumstances they're facing now certainly wasn't happening then and they uh, equally did a about a 15 kilometer stretch right into their downtown was completely cut off from traffic uh, right throughout the year every Sunday uh, it is something that uh, that works uh, people enjoy um, and you know it it, it it turned itself a little bit more into a festival than I thought it would uh, but people take advantage and put up, uh, you know, some tents and, you know, sell some product. And uh, people can get down there and enjoy some of the stores and shops that are along the route. So it, it fulfilled every uh, aspiration I had. And certainly I hope they do it more frequently. Uh, you know, every, every Sunday would be great. Uh, and, uh, you know, it really is kind of the kind of thing that attracts people to that space.
3: I remember we were talking about this on Friday. It wasn't necessarily a street festival, but more of an open street. So, how did right. what you saw on Sunday compare to what the original idea you saw in Bogota? What are, are they doing anything different?
5: No, I think uh, in in, uh, in Ukraine in Kiev they had once you reach the downtown, they had a bit of a concert uh, festival going on there. But that was right right in the heart of the center of the city. Um, I, I, I really see it more as an open streets concept to just let people do what you know what they normally would not be able to do when uh, the place is occupied by cars, and you know it, it attracts people. People come down to uh, either participate in it or see it or witness it, and uh, that's exactly what you want to have happen: is uh, people to interact and, and enjoy that space. So it was more, uh, more of in my my. My estimation, both in Colombia and in Bogota specifically, it was more an open streets concept predominantly. And, uh, you know, if you add something downtown, you know, to bring some music into it in Gore Park, for instance, uh, added bonus uh, to the whole concept. But it was really trying to open up the entire corridor.
3: I remember when we were talking to the city on Friday, they said as well that it's sort of twofold, not only for the, for the open street festive atmosphere that it is, but also to see how the traffic could handle or the city right. could handle that, that loss of artery as far as traffic. What are your thoughts there?
5: Yeah, you know, the, the, it's weekend, uh, traffic is lighter, and so there's a lot of outlets to get through the city. I mean, you know, I've, I've said often that you, you really don't want the center of your city to be, a, you know, a highway corridor. You You want it yeah. to be... localized traffic, uh, you know, it it just doesn't feel like it's just a go-through. But there are other options. Uh, There's Cannon Street, there's Barton Street, there's Wilson Street, uh, there's uh, uh, Hunter Street and uh, Charlton. So there are many ways that people can uh, get around the, the actual downtown gore, and it's actually a demonstration of how that's possible. And so when LRT comes, and LRT is very much on the horizon, uh, that will change the traffic patterns and there'll be a, more of a need to use the other corridors to uh, to get around or through the downtown. So uh, it's a demonstration of how that can be done. And, you know, I, don't, I didn't hear any complaints um, uh, up to date. Uh, uh you know traffic changes and adapts and uh and you know the, they they adapted the existing circumstances providing you have other outlets and certainly there are lots of other outlets for people to get around get around the downtown and go from east to west
3: so what now can you see this being a, a weekly event where uh and again it was only four hours from 10 till 2 uh, maybe extending it a little bit uh, how long does it run in some of the other places
5: uh, every weekend in Bogota, every Sunday, uh, every Sunday in uh, Kiev, uh, Ukraine. All day, uh, obviously not, obviously not happening there now. Uh, but uh, I would, I would highly recommend that city adopt a, a, you know, every Sunday approach where you know you open it up from nine o'clock to four o'clock uh you know through the spring fall and summer that's that's my view uh whether they do it or not that's uh that's out of my hands but that's certainly something that I would encourage them to do because I, I i think we've demonstrated that people are attracted to it they enjoy it and it doesn't particularly upset the uh, traffic patterns if it's done on a sunday
3: Fred Eisenberger with us, former mayor of the city of Hamilton, talking about open streets on King Street this past weekend, uh, running from 10 a.m. until 2. And who knows, uh, may see more of them, and maybe even on a weekly basis. Fred, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Leaders of the Robinson-Huron Treaty litigation fund say they've reached a proposed $10 billion settlement with the governments of Ontario and Canada over unpaid annuities for using their lands. The fund, which represents the 21 Robinson-Huron First Nations, announced Saturday that the uh, proposal will resolve claims only tied to the past unpaid annuities, which stretch back more than 170 years. To break this down, Liam Midzane-Gobin is with us, settler, scholar, and assistant professor of political Science, Brock University, and here now. Liam, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott.
6: I'm doing well. How are you doing?
3: Good. Liam, break this down. How significant is this?
6: It really is one of those cases that we might look back at, and uh, it might be one of those named cases like we see with Chilcotin or the Tunaha Nation. Um, This is one of the most important things that comes out of this is that. It is an agreement by both the federal and provincial governments on the Anishinaabe interpretation of the treaty. So, what the governments were trying to argue was that they were not meant to be augmenting the uh, annuity payments each year for the treaty. They'd been frozen since, I believe, 1875 at $4 a year. That's still going on. But the treaty itself, the text, says that they were meant to be augmented from time to time as resource revenues were brought in by the crown. That didn't happen. The governments argued that they didn't have to. And the Anishinaabe said, actually, yes, you do. And the court has twice sided with the Anishinaabe. um, And now the governments have agreed to uh, to that interpretation as well. So it, it really is a big deal. So what happens now? Well, what happens now is that um, the First Nations have to collectively come together and decide how they want to disperse the payments. Um, These treaty annuities were meant to go to the communities and individuals themselves, and they have been. So for the last 170-ish years, individuals have been getting um, annual payments. When we talk about $10 billion, though, um, that is for past annuities obviously not something that can start going to um, those who have unfortunately passed away and so there's going to be a component where some of the money goes to individuals but a large part of the money actually goes to some of the 21 first nations or larger funds to be dispersed and to really do community projects and so um, i think it's about six to eight months that uh, the communities have said they want to have Uh, a report in hand for how best to go about and do that disbursement but that's kind of what we're waiting on right now
3: how many people roughly would this be divided up between
6: that's that's kind of hard to say um because each of these First Nations, none of them are are huge. Um, some of them are quite remote. Um, so I'm not actually sure what that number is, but I would uh, hazard a guess that a good portion of that money is going to go to the communities for community projects, rather than it being something that uh, right. goes um, gets dispersed to to individuals mainly.
3: Is this just one of many that are at issue right now that are still still have to be resolved? <laughs>
6: Yes and no. Um, Yes, there are a number of different treaties across the country that have to be resolved, um, but it's one of only two treaties that I'm aware of that have this augmentation clause in it. And the other one is the Robinson Superior Treaty um, that is a treaty that was signed around Lake Superior. Um, So this one comes from um, the Lake Huron area. And these are the only two treaties that I know of and that I've seen reported that actually have this this augmentation clause. And currently, um, the Crown, both the provincial and federal governments, are still in court arguing that they don't have to make this kind of a payment in the case of the Robinson Superior Treaty. So I expect that that will probably go the same way as this one does. Um, But we'll have to wait and see what the, the next steps are there.
3: Does this set a precedence moving forward?
6: I think so. On a couple of different levels. Um, First, on that augmentation clause, um, I think we'll probably end up seeing a pretty direct outcome uh, in the Robinson Superior case. But on the other hand, this yet again enshrines from the court's point of view that and well, from the government's agreement at this point, that actually it is First Nations interpretation of treaty that does hold. Um, That has been law for quite a while, but in the previous rulings on this case, uh, both of which the government's lost, at, at both times, there's been quite an emphasis on uh, from the justices on the First Nations worldview and on Indigenous interpretations of treaty. And I expect that that will continue to be upheld in future decisions.
3: Will we ever get to the point, Liam, where we resolve these issues in this country, all of them or most of them?
6: It's possible, but I think this actually highlights one of the potential pitfalls here. I think... It is a like it's a good news story, and it's it's a good thing that we have an agreement in this case. But let's not forget that the first decision in this case came in 2018 against the governments. And so what we're talking about also is another five-year process until we see this agreement be agreed to. And so I think eventually will we get there? Yes. But what it will take, our governments being willing to actually stand up and come to agreement before they're told by the courts they have to that's been one of the problems is that there's a lot of talk about reconciliation and the need to rebuild uh, relationships and renew treaty but governments haven't been willing to do that until after courts tell them they actually have to follow through on the promises that, that they made and so if we start to see some of the promises really being upheld by governments beforehand, I I think as important as resolving past issues is not continuing to create new ones. And that is really uh, where I think we'll want to see some some action on the government's part.
3: So what will be the reaction of the Indigenous community to this? Wait and see, you know, obviously talk is one thing, action is another.
6: I think it's I, I hope it's going to be positive. Um, I think any amount of money and especially the the ten billion dollars on the table it could be transformative for a lot of these communities. Um, and like I said, well, like you said, too, let's not forget, this is only for past annuities, um, it's still going into the future, still has to be determined how that augmentation clause is going to be implemented. And so we're going to have to see how that works. Um, but You know what, at the end of the day, I think that this is probably a good thing because it enshrines, like I said, not only that First Nations interpretations of treaty are law of the land, but also that the government actually does have to pay up when it breaks that treaty. And that is a good thing from nearly coast to coast to coast.
3: Does this change things moving forward? Lots of discussion about Indigenous communities and their natural resources and control over them. How does it move that discussion or does it?
6: Again, I think part of this is really up to the government. I think it does change it insofar as there is now even more legal precedent that the governments have to follow through on their word, but it really depends on whether or not governments are going to be willing to, right? It's that willingness of governments to show up before they get to the stage of forcing First Nations or any other indigenous community into litigation. Stopping it before it gets there is going to be what's important but I may be pessimistic. I hope I'm, I'm overly pessimistic here, but we haven't seen a lot of willingness to do that on the part of this government or, or really any other one.
3: Liam Midzangobin with a settler, scholar, and assistant professor of political science, Brock University, uh, talking about uh, leaders of the Robinson Huron Treaty Litigation Fund say they've reached a proposed settlement with the Ontario and Canadian government. Liam, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: You might remember way back when uh, lots of chatter in regard to statues and names of Canadian historians and such and, and toppling of statues, removing them. And where do we go from here? Where do you, How do you move forward with this? Uh, at four historical sites across Hamilton, the city says it has installed signs to acknowledge the statues and monuments are potentially problematic for Indigenous communities and that it is working on gathering uh, the story behind them. On Tuesday new signage at the Augustus Jones statue in Stony Creek read, the city of Hamilton is working together with the community to provide a broader and more inclusive view of the past which may challenge some to rethink what they held to be truths. There is more than one story here. Each of these stories associated with this monument uh, must and will be told. The sites are the Sir John A. MacDonald Monument Monument, uh, Gore Park near King Street in Houston, uh, the Queen Victoria Monument at Gore Park, West End facing James Street, uh, the Augustus Jones statue, King Street East and Jones Street in Stony Creek, and the United Empire Loyalists in front of 50 Main Street East and Dundurn Park. To talk more about all of this, Shelley Hill is with us, Manager, Indigenous Relations, City of Hamilton, and here now. Shelley, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you.
7: Thank you for having me again. So,
3: Shelley, we've, we I remember when these statues started coming down that, you know, everybody was trying to figure out what to do, how to move forward, uh, how do you solve these issues, how do you educate people. How did you arrive at this? And this is only a starting point from what I understand. This is just to start the conversation. Is that accurate?
7: Yes that's accurate. Um, well, through, um, knowledge keepers and elders and historians, um, we've sort of, uh, in working with a consulting group called first people's group. Um, and the reason with first People's Group, who's based out of Ottawa, who is an indigenous consultant on many things like this uh, due to their uh, expertise uh, working with the City of Kingston. Um, we asked them to help us with uh, understanding how we can move forward and in, in in this work. So um, with their um, with their expertise and through guidance, through what we call a circle of experts, who's the local, like I was saying, knowledge keepers and um, historians who are indigenous, uh, sort of help us put together um, sort of the next steps on um, starting how to, how to go about starting some of these conversations to create a safe space in um, developing, you know, the next steps, right?
3: So, these are uh, plaques that are set up at these sites next to these statues. Is that accurate?
7: Yes. So yes. and they identified during the report or during the work, they identified the five triggering uh, the four the four that were that you just shared with um, definitely have the plaques. And those plaques are there just to let the the public know that um, there's still much more work to be done.
3: This is fascinating, and it's interesting how this story has evolved over time and in, in the direction that we're going in. Um, you know, obviously, I don't—I'm sure the solution we're not at at, at this point. What has the feedback been like since uh, this idea came about? And because many thought about this way back when, was let's put to the other side of the story here. What's the feedback been like for you?
7: Honestly, the feedback has been great and yeah. positive. Definitely, people are are just reflecting on this is a good, you know, identifying that it's a good process, and um, th- it's just been very positive all around. So,
3: so should there be another monument uh, explaining the other side of the story? How do you deal with each individual monuments like this? Mm-hmm.
7: Well, everyone's going to have their, um, their views on what should happen here and there, but um, I think that's why it's important that we do what we can to create further engagement and see what the outcome would be. Some have, you know, various um, ideas of where, you know, some of these monuments either should be or not should be or what should be, you know, Different? Um, Could it be art? Could it be a non, you know, in a statue that doesn't recognize someone with a name, or is it something, you know, of nature? And either way, what needs to happen is sort of revisioning these monuments and creating an indigenous place making from, especially from our unique uh, perspectives.
3: And this isn't erasing history, Shelley. This is telling the whole yeah. story. This is telling the rest of the story. Right. I remember being a young kid and thinking, we don't have much of a history. We do, we just weren't being told.
7: That's right. It's going to create a fuller truth into historical narratives, um, especially in places of history. Definitely.
3: So where does this go from here with the city? What happens now?
7: So right now, we are continuing to work on an engagement plan, engagement strategy to determine um, how we're going to, you know, create uh, those safe spaces to have these conversations. So that's what, that's what we're working on right now.
3: Shelley Hill is with us, Manager, Indigenous Relations, City of Hamilton. Uh, four historical sites across the city. Uh, plaques have, installed, have been installed to acknowledge the other side of the story. Shelley, thanks so much for the time. Good luck moving forward.
7: Thank you very much. And you can always go to the indigenous.ca at the City of Hamilton's website. Uh, we do have a section on landmarks and monuments that we um continue to share uh, in the progress.
0: Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve
7: into the issue until he is. You're
0: listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
3: We've talked a lot about uh, all sorts of things, whether it is AI or virtual reality. Where does this all go moving forward? We take a look at a Spanish tech company, VirtualWare, who recently partnered with McMaster University to unveil a new state-of-the-art virtual reality room At McMaster Innovation Park, the 100 meter square room or 100 square meter room, Uh, free roam lab provides students, faculty, businesses with the opportunity to explore new uses for virtual reality tools and services. Uh, The general manager says Hamilton was a perfect fit to launch their first VR space in Canada. Ultimately, what we see is a great opportunity for Hamilton to be at the hub of the virtual reality industry. To talk more about all of this, Michael Rose is with us, Virtualware VP, General Manager and here now. Michael, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you very much, Scott, for having me. So what is virtualware? What is, what, what, is, what is your company all about?
8: All right, well, essentially what we do is we help companies adopt and scale virtual reality technology. Uh, so what does that mean? Uh, well, basically, think about virtual reality as another computational tool um, that allows people to do things that were never possible before. Uh, So in regards to, let's just say, history of computers, uh, we've seen obviously the advancements of society and, and a lot of things economically and culturally because of the use of computers. Uh, This is now basically just another step within uh, utilizing these tools to be able to help us to solve real world problems. So essentially, as a company, what we do is we help other companies, uh, especially in regards to industries, be able to start to leverage these technologies to help them solve some of the critical challenges that they have, uh, whether it's engineering, uh, training, uh, process management. Uh, many different things that uh, uh virtual reality allows uh, a much better grasp and ability to to do and uh and it's something that uh is not the future it's happening now
3: you are bringing virtual reality to businesses and showing them how they can use it in whatever industry they're in my next yeah. question is who is using virtual reality or is it like AI who isn't everybody is <laughs>
8: Well, definitely, I mean, AI is having a moment right now, and I think especially because of uh, the simplicity of, let's just say, some of the most recent tools that have been uh, unleashed into into the marketplace. Uh, virtual reality, uh, you know, right now, definitely is still a, a little bit more niche in regards to uh, industries using it. Um, we find that, obviously, in regards to businesses, sometimes that sort of uh, adoptions... Um, Let's just say phase happens a little bit longer, but people have been using this for many years now, you know, examples, uh, probably like, you know, some of the earlier adopters were uh, flight simulation uh, training. So pilots being able to, Mm. uh, you know, train to be a pilot without ever going into the air, uh, essentially uh, being able to 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 learn how to to pilot an aircraft. Uh, This has been done for many years now uh and uh, to to great effect uh bringing down uh, a a lot of costs in regards to training and and as we know uh especially nowadays in in regards to sort of workforce development there's a lot of challenges that companies are having because uh, the rate of technology is speeding up so quickly we need to upskill current workers uh, as well as provide new skills for the future generation so Uh, Virtual reality technology has already been used in many ways uh, uh, um, uh, in regards to that, uh, and it continues on to expand other use cases.
3: Would industry realize how valuable this is to them, or is that something you have to sell? Are they looking for this, or uh, do they realize that this is developing so quickly? Here, we can provide you with this hypothetical situation, and you can test your product.
8: Yeah, I would say I would say it's a bit of a balance. There's definitely companies who uh, have already identified and understand that they need to start to uh, uh implement these technologies uh uh within uh um, let's just say their workflows. Uh again, yeah, there's some who, who potentially maybe are used to a little bit more legacy tools, a little bit more traditional in regards to their approach. But uh, we feel like especially anybody who is going through a transformation, digital transformation, let's just let's just put uh, an example. Let's just say the automotive industry here in Ontario uh, going through a huge digital transformation in regards to uh, uh, you know, new EV uh, a- automotive industry. It's a whole new uh, platform, mm-hmm. uh, different ways that people have to be uh, understand in regards to building cars. And uh, with such a with such a, a robust industry here in Canada, uh, in regards to, let's just say, you know, making traditional vehicles uh, the, uh, you know, the the, uh, the original way. Um, in order to change and to tap into that new market, um, new tools are going to be necessary to adopt. And uh, so we're not saying we're a panacea and we're going to solve all the problems for them, but uh, we do uh, we do have a lot of things uh, that can offer uh, acceleration for them to be able to be competitive. Let's just say, for instance, the ability if uh, you know, these new EV battery factories that are being built, the ability to actually start to uh, build simulations and training for workers to be able to start to uh, train before they even... Uh, go on and go into a factory before the factory is even built that speed up a process and that ability to uh, for companies to be able to tap into is, is immensely uh, um, uh, it makes a very good business case, let's just say. And so, vir- so there's definitely companies who are already looking into this, but you know, there's other ones that are going to need to start to think about it as well too.
3: <laughs> Where does virtual reality and AI meet or are they the same? Just different versions of
8: OK, so good question. So uh, AI can be implemented within virtual reality. Virtual reality, essentially what it does is it allows you to go into a three-dimensional uh, experience of mm. uh, uh, of a computational scenario, let's just say. Uh, Obviously, probably most people see it uh, as something sort of like entertainment and gaming. Uh, that's probably sort of just the most popular. But ultimately, anything uh, can be created uh, within virtual reality. And then within that, AI can be used uh, to help in regards to trigger certain processes, uh, reactions, right? So one of the interesting things right now, um, you know, so, some of the top uh, uh uh, companies in, in AI, even NVIDIA, announcing uh, you know some of the tools that they have available where. You know, you, you could go into a gaming scenario and you could be talking to characters and it's an AI uh, that essentially mm. is listening to what you're saying and has the ability to converse with you. So not typical to what it was before where there was sort of pre-programmed sort of answers. There's the ability for the AI to actually think about what you're saying and then provide answers based on that. similar to what we understand now, let's just say in versus chat GPT, but more in, wow. in the lines wow. of a character. So you have the ability to do that in virtual reality, um, and so so AI is 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 a technology component within the virtual reality experience.
3: Spanish tech company Virtualware recently partnering with McMaster University to unveil a new state of the art virtual uh, virtual reality room at McMaster Innovation Park. Michael Rose is with us, Virtualware VP General Manager. Michael, thanks so much for the time. Fascinating. Good luck.
0: Thank you very much, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: Going to bring in Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. couple of reasons. Uh, By-elections are underway. Also, uh, news breaking today that the RCMP looking into uh, potential obstruction of justice with the liberals and the NC, uh, SNC-Lavalin affair uh, several years after the fact. Uh, Duff is with us now. Duff Conacher, thanks for your time. Hope you're well. Yes, thank you. I am. So, Duff, I remember talking to NDP leader Jugmeet Singh and, and asking during the whole David Johnston thing and what have you, uh, public inquiry, uh, why not just leverage your power with the government, trigger an election. He said he didn't feel comfortable throwing the country into an election when uh, there's allegations of election interference going on, yet we're having by-elections. I mean, is do by-elections get interfered with as much as federal elections?
9: Uh, It's certainly possible if it is a riding where either some domestic interest group or a foreign government wants to uh, try to ensure that a certain party is elected, but we don't have enough by-elections to lead to a change in government, and so likely they're not being targeted as much as a general election is.
3: Are we watching more closely during these elections?
9: Uh, hopefully, the the forces are. The system hasn't changed, so unfortunately, the uh, the actual panel that is uh, is supposed to be the hub of. Uh watching over election interference is still a group of people who all serve at the pleasure of the Prime Minister. Uh, So they're serving at the pleasure of the leader of one party, the ruling party, even though elections and by-elections affect all parties, and it's a system designed to cover up things that embarrass the ruling party, not to actually stop foreign interference or protect the public interest. Uh, They haven't changed their protocol either. They would only report something that would affect a national election result and obviously that doesn't fit with by elections because they're not in during a national election so again the system the liberals set up in 2019 was designed to cover up things that would embarrass the liberals not to actually stop foreign interference. Uh,
3: It seems there's so much on the stove right now, Duff, you don't know what to stir next. Um, Where are we with the whole David Johnston thing and election interference? I mean, my God, the whole Bernardo thing came at the end of last week and now we've got SNC-Lavalin on the table again. Where are we with the whole election interference and moving forward on this discussion? Or are we?
9: well the latest reports are the opposition parties are talking with each other and are coming up with terms of reference for a public inquiry and also coming up with a short list of people or possible and probably a good idea to have more than one commissioner have a three-person commission which has happened in the past for inquiries and it sounds like they're heading towards uh, concluding both of those things and putting it before the government uh, there's no reason for them not to cooperate with each other, and uh, it's, on, it's all upside for opposition parties to have this happen. Uh, so I'm expecting that they will actually reach agreement on what the inquiry should look into and also uh, who should head it up, whether it's one person or a few people
3: shouldn't the government call a public inquiry and then everybody come together on how to do this? Because what seems to be or what could be happening here is, the, you know, the government's entertaining the idea of a public inquiry, but if the opposition can't get their act together and come up with the criteria, then we can't have one. Isn't it a case of you call the public inquiry, then we figure out how it works?
9: Should be. The liberals are just trying to delay longer and trying to turn the tables on the the uh, opposition, I mean, we should have expect this when you're talking about the SNC-Lavalin situation. Trudeau changed his story te- eight times before he finally gave a statement of what actually happened. And then even then he fudged it and said that uh, there may have been a perception that there was pressure, but it was all proper. But before that, there were certain <sighs> like, different sort lines of like that a, he tried. Sort of, like a, sort of like a perception of bias, almost. Yeah, and the Liberals are trying... Seven different lines, and in this one, there's, there's someone advised them, hey, why don't we try and turn the tables on the opposition parties, hoping they'll never agree on terms of reference or a short list yeah. of people who they agree could be inquiry commissioners. And uh, I think it's going to blow up in their face just like everything else has because uh, when you play games then uh, and the opposition has a majority in a minority parliament, then you lose your games you're not you're not it's not your ball you can't just say i'm going home and not playing because uh it's my ball and so they're going to lose again. I think the opposition parties will corner them again, and they'll just look bad for delaying further. I wouldn't. Ex- I would expect the liberals to try and spin it one more time to say they were always intending to do this, and they were just waiting for the opposition parties to get their act together, or some yeah. other, you know, <laughs> false false claim, yeah. really. Um, but that's what they try to do. We've seen it again and again with this prime minister and this cabinet when they get into these kind of. Uh, scandalous situations so how come
3: we're talking about snc Lavalin again why is that story come up again
9: well uh democracy watch uh in february 2021 sent a letter to the rcmp saying we want uh, documents we want an update on the investigation uh has it occurred is it completed what's happening And the RCMP didn't respond. So then in June of 2021, we wrote again saying, where's the update? You know, you said you were examining the situation in August, 2019, we're almost uh, two years later, uh, three years later, sorry, and that was in uh, June of 2022 and uh, no response. So we filed an access to information request. And on May 25th, the RCMP sent us a letter saying, uh, here are 96 pages. 86 pages are redacted. And the reason is that uh, you've requested documents on uh, the investigation into the allegations that Prime Minister Trudeau and members of his cabinet obstructed justice and tried to obstruct the uh, SNC prosecution. And that matter is under currently under investigation. And so that's why we're not disclosing uh, anything on 86 pages of the 96 page document that they sent us. uh, That's the first confirmation that they are actually investigating, not just examining the situation. Hmm. Um, I
3: heard somebody throw out Jody Wilson-Raybould's name to look into or be part of the special inquiry, public inquiry. Is that a a valid uh, suggestion?
9: Into the foreign interference? Yes, yeah.
3: If there was two or three people
9: to head up. You can't have someone who's kind of essentially declared herself to be Unfriendly. That's as bad as having someone who's a friend. So, still too biased. Okay. Yeah. Still too biased. We have to avoid perception of bias. There are thousands of lawyers out there who do uh, criminal law. And they're they're not active politically. Not every lawyer is active politically, and they're qualified. It doesn't have to be a former Supreme Court justice. Hmm. Those people are chosen by prime ministers. It doesn't have to be a a judge. Those people are chosen by prime ministers or premiers. Uh, There's tons of lawyers out there. They know what investigations are. Put them on with someone who knows national security but doesn't have any pattern of donations or, or other things that would – that would. I mean, if the opposition parties come up with people, they're going to come up with people that they all agree on. So yeah. conservatives aren't going to allow an NDP or a liberal to be put on it, and the NDP is not going to allow someone who's blatantly conservative. And there are neutral people. They're they're not part of the power elite, but they're out there willing to serve, and they're just never chosen yep. because they're not part of the power elite yep. of, of any of the parties. This? But Duff uh, Conniger with they, us. They can't find them. Sorry, we we're we out
3: of time, Duff. Duff Conniger with us, co founder of Democracy Watch, by elections, and RCMP looking into the SNC Lavalin affair. Duff, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. Scott Radley show coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am great. How are you? So far so good. Uh Tie Cats another loss. Uh, mm.
10: too early too early
3: to care or a
10: sign of things to come. So Scott one of the um, one of the Great things and terrible things together of the CFL is the line that we always hear that says, you know, the season doesn't start till Labor Day. Yeah. And I tell you, like that is probably the worst advertising slogan for a league ever. Yeah, because like, it basically says, don't go to a game until Labor Day. Yeah, and we got nine games that don't mean yeah. squat. Please buy a yeah. ticket. Um, sure. But, uh, so that part, it, that it's true though. Like in the sense that the Ticats Cats are zero to two. The Ty Cats have been zero to two. Thank you to my friend Steve Milton for this stat. Twelve times in the last eighteen years, they just they always start. Is that out, supposed to make us feel better, Steve? Well, or? <laughs> it it yeah, it does in the sense that how many times in those eighteen years have they at least been to the Grey Cup? I mean six, seven, eight, nine. I don't know. Like sure. they they get there. They you know it. Yeah, they look terrible right now. I mean, Bo Levi Mitchell, honestly, at this point, if you were to judge that signing on these two games alone, it is a giant wet bed. I mean, he has been awful in the first two games that he's played for the Ticats, and now he's hurt. However, as I say, nothing really matters until September in this league. And I don't, I'm not suggesting that in September the Cats are going to look this bad. They may, but... History says that they will probably look better And the Ottawa Rough. Reneg- R- 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 now I've gone through every other name Except for the, right- right. the Red Blacks No, the Red Blacks, not the Rough Riders
3: Come on, go with Rough Riders yeah, we could.
10: They'll probably stink again like they usually do And who knows what Montreal is going to be like um, Hamilton probably Is going to be fine Probably, as I say, these two games, yeah, they've looked really, really, really bad. And for the life of me, I can't figure out why this, not just this team, this franchise starts every Mm. year badly. Every year they start badly. I don't get it, but it seems to balance out more often than not. You think we could use the mayor's superpowers to help in some way? Yes. Mayor's man, give her the ball. Could you do that? Could we insert her like a video game where you get to have one play of superpower, Mayor superpower under center to you know to throw an eighty-yard pass? It's like double blue, yeah. (laughs) And there's like a flame behind the ball, and everyone, yeah. You get to whatever she does, you get to double it if the Mayor does it just for that one play. Superpower Mayor. It's like Helmet Day. Everybody brings a helmet, gets to play. No, that's just silly. Uh, Last game that might have helped. Yesterday. I mean, look, it's, as I say, it's it, you have to, at a certain point, have the confidence that they're going to figure it out. But I, I go back to my point. I don't understand, Scott, and I, I just can't figure out why every year it's predictable that this team, this franchise, this organization is going to start slowly. It makes no sense why this happens, and yet it does over and over and over and over again. What are you going to talk about in the show tonight? Uh, we are going to be talking. You know what today is? Today is a big day, Scott. A big celebratory day. Oh my! You know what we today hit forty million. We hit forty million. That was, no, Friday. was Friday. No, that was Friday, right. and then Sunday was was Father's Day. Happy Father's, Father's day. day, by the way. Thank you. You too. Today is Tax Freedom Day. For the first day all year, you're making your own money and not giving it to the government which is you know, kind of nice until you realize we're halfway through the year and we've just finished paying that off. We're going to talk about that. Uh, we're also going to be talking, there's a new um, tourism push with a new place in Hamilton. One question I always have, Scott, we're going to talk about this, one question I always have about Hamilton and tourism. When you bring someone, if Scott Thompson brings someone to Hamilton from out of town, where do you take them? What is our tourist wow. attraction. that's interesting. I'd say the
3: Falls, Webster's Falls, someplace like that.
10: Yep, but I mean, a lot of cities, it's a no yeah, doubt. But
3: like, CN Tower like a, in Toronto. Yeah, or whatever. like a commercial
10: thing. Yeah, but here, it's it's trickier. What What mm. is the thing? That, so we'll be talking to the guy who's in charge of tourism in the city about what is the thing? Where where When people come here, where do they go? Well, we'll find out. Good point. All right. Uh, Scott Radley, show
3: coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. Thanks,
0: Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live, weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
3: And that's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This on the Titanic Exploration Tourist Submersible that has missing in the atlantic ocean uh mr lowe writes breaking news scott many say the titanic is a cursed ship this was bound to happen eventually more lives lost let the titanic rest in peace mr lowe keep right except to pass 99